0: listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com.
1: Would you please stand for the reading of Scripture from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, the first six verses. This is the word of the Lord. Judge not that ye, that you be not judged, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not see the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be.
0: Good morning, everyone. Pop quiz. Have you ever heard of the fundamental attribution error? Your skit's over, Nathan. (laughs) (laughs) Fundamental attribution error. It's a term from social psychology. Sometimes it's known as the correspondence bias. And basically what it argues is that, especially in more individualistic Western cultures like ours, we tend to, when we're evaluating other people's behavior or their actions, we tend to overemphasize the role that character plays in other people's actions. But when we're evaluating ourselves, we overemphasize the role that circumstances play in our actions. So when someone else does something we find distasteful, well, that's just because that's who they are. When we do something that others would find distasteful, it's like, no, 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 you don't understand what else was going on. Right, yesterday, my wife didn't make the bed when she got up in the morning. Thank you. It's because she's a lazy slob who doesn't care about the other person who has to share the bed with her, right? I didn't make the bed this morning. Is this like audience participation week or something? (laughs) Let's keep it going, Johnny, thank you. I didn't make the bed this morning because I was putting the final touches on my sermon and that's way more important, right? You see how that works. When she doesn't do it, it's a character issue. When I don't do it, it's because there were other circumstances that were more important, more, more pressing. Another example, my wife says that I am a lazy slob who cares nothing about other people who live in our house because I leave laundry all over the entire house. And I'm working on it, Okay. The reason that social psychologists talk about the fundamental attribution error uh, is not because they're trying to get us to judge each other or evaluate each other's actions less. That's impossible. You have to evaluate what's going on around you in order to, you know, stay alive in the world. They're not trying to get us to evaluate other people less, but to evaluate others more accurately it turns out that uh, we're not very good at judging others fairly. And we're not very good at judging ourselves fairly either. Well, it's not a new discovery. It's the same point that Jesus is making in Matthew chapter 7 in these first couple of verses we're going to look at today. If uh, you didn't bring a Bible with you, you can grab one underneath the seat in front of you. It's on page 965. Uh, We're taking two weeks to look at the first 12 verses of chapter 7. It's kind of one big section. And as we look at this section, we're seeing how Jesus is taking his theme of greater righteousness... Uh, greater righteousness is what he's been, be, been preaching throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Greater righteousness is this call on us to have our inside match our outside. Not by throwing off all of our constraints and doing whatever we want, but by transforming our hearts in order to wholeheartedly be oriented towards the righteousness that God calls us to. A righteousness that is greater than any other because there's congruence there. We both do and want to do what God calls us. So Jesus is taking this big, big picture theme of greater righteousness and saying, okay, how does that play out in the way you relate to other people and the way you evaluate or discern other people's righteousness and your own righteousness, Now, when we hear that, we probably immediately think of it in a sort of a negative light. You mean, I'm supposed to evaluate how bad other people are doing? It's like, no, that's not where where Jesus is going with it. What we're supposed to do is encourage one another on how well they're doing, but we'll come more to that a little bit later. As we jump into these well, we'll take six verses this week and six verses next week. As we jump into the beginning of chapter 7 here, we're going to see how, how, Jesus, how followers of Jesus live out a wholehearted orientation towards God in the way we interact and evaluate one another, and primarily in this area that you can't, you can't wholeheartedly follow God and have a critical spirit of others and an uncritical spirit towards yourself. You're not living uh, an integrated life if you're constantly judging what others are doing while being blind to what's going on in your own heart. Or as we'll discover as we go through this, until you can judge yourself fairly, until we can learn to judge ourselves fairly, we will only ever judge others unfairly. Till we learn to judge ourselves fairly, we will only ever judge others unfairly. So let's jump in, and I'll I'll show you what I mean. Take a look at at verse 1. Well, verses 1 and 2. Actually, verses 1 and 2 are kind of the the governing sort of main teaching of these 12 verses that the next 10 verses after it are uh, examples of or outworkings of. So we'll spend a little extra time here in verses 1 and 2 before seeing how Jesus applies that. So Matthew 7, 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And at first glance, I mean, it seems pretty clear. Don't judge others. Of course, when we use the word judge, we tend to almost entirely use it to mean just condemn Don't condemn others. You know, you you can't judge others. You don't know what's going on in other people's hearts. And so you can't, it's inappropriate for you to point out or to express an opinion about someone else's behavior because you don't really know what's going on. I mean, even if it looks wrong, uh, maybe they're doing it for the right reasons. You can't judge. Don't judge anyone at all, ever. But I'm not so sure, actually, I'm positive, that's not the right interpretation of these verses. Jesus is not pronouncing a universal judgment against universal judgments because he goes on in subsequent verses to tell us, hey, you're going to have to exercise your critical faculties. You're going to have to judge. In verse 6, he's going to tell us there are some people who are classified as dogs and pigs, and you don't want to waste your valuables on them. You're going to need to know. Verse 15, he's going to say, look, there's false prophets, and you are, you're going to have to be able to tell who's a false prophet and who's not. So right away, in the bigger context, we can see, okay, Jesus isn't saying don't ever judge, don't ever uh, make e-, you know make any sort of uh, voice any sort of opinion about others' behavior so what what is he getting at? Well, we might be helped if we look a little more closely at the word judge. Right? Judge not that you be not judged in in English and in Greek. Uh, judge has a broader range of meanings that the The rest of the context can help bring out. Um, To judge something may mean to voice a preference. My daughter asked me the other day, what's my favorite season? Fall. I judge fall to be the best. I voiced a preference. No real reason for it other than I like it. You may also judge in the sense that you're choosing between two different options. Um, You go to the grocery store, and there's two pineapple. And pineapples? Pine... Two pineapples and one of them smells ripe and the other one doesn't. Which one are you gonna pick? You're gonna judge. This one's ripe, this one's not. Uh, It can also mean, the word judge can mean to rationally think through or make a decision based on a a cognitive process. Like asking yourself, is now a good time to invest in Bitcoin? (laughs) Yes, no, let's think it through, let's judge. Of course, judge can also be used to talk about, you know, a judge passing a judicial ruling, and the word judge can be used to mean voicing an opinion about others' behavior with the intent of affecting a change in their behavior. Now, which one of those five uses do you think Jesus is condemning in Matthew seven one? I actually don't think he's condemning... Oh, thank you. I let that rhetorical question hang a little too long. Sorry, Nick. I don't think he's condemning any of them. Because again, he tells us in a couple of verses, you're going to have to discern, you're going to have to judge. And in Matthew 18, spoiler alert, he gives us instructions on how to voice an opinion about others' behavior in such a way that they change their behavior and come more in line with the righteousness that God calls us to. So he's not condemning any one of these sort of versions or, or definitions of judging. If you've been with us as we've, as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount the last couple of months, you've, you've noticed over and over and over again, we say, hey, Jesus is, is giving us some instruction here, and that instruction keeps driving below the surface of behavior and into our hearts, What Jesus is driving at in saying, judge not that you be not judged, what he's driving at is the heart attitude underneath judgment, or worse, underneath judgmentalism that finds it easy to be critical and condemning of others while utterly blind uh, to ourselves. That's going to come through more clearly as we look at verses 3, 4, and 5 when jesus says judge not he's he isn't condemning the behavior of discerning between right and wrong he's condemning a heart attitude that corrupts that behavior that turns that behavior into the thing that we're good at i'm just a fruit inspector i'm not being judgmental so when, when you see chapter 7 verse 1 judge not it's it, Read that as, because we're reading it in context, do not be judgmental or do not judge unfairly. Because Jesus certainly wants us to use our critical faculties to make value judgment. Otherwise, how will we know who are pigs, dogs, false prophets, these other phrases that are used uh, to describe people who are in error or who are uh, not living up to the righteousness God calls them to. His point is not that We should never evaluate others actions his point is that followers of Jesus called to a life of greater righteousness living wholeheartedly oriented towards God who he is what he wants what he'll do when he returns those people when they bring their critical faculties to bear on other people other situations around them have to judge or discern you can't not You have to discern, but you must not judge unfairly. That's what comes through really clearly in verse 2. Jesus uses these two sort of proverbial sayings that are common uh, common in his culture. Uh, For with the judgment, actually in Greek there's this threefold repetition in both of them. For with the judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you measure, it will be measured to you. In other words, the standard by which you judge other people's actions is the standard that's going to be applied to you. The measure or the measuring stick, the yardstick by which you measure other people's attitudes or character is going to be the yardstick used to measure you. There's this old sermon illustration that's floated around in pastoral circles for, for decades, and I've used it before, but I'm gonna use it again. Uh, imagine you're at the end of your life. You know, this is one of those proverbial, you're before the pearly gates and all that, and, and St. Peter says, hey, before I, I let you into heaven, this is not what happens, by the way, this is just a story, but he says, before I let you into heaven, uh, you know, we gotta find out, did you live the right kind of life? And, and we're not gonna evaluate you based on the 10 commandments. We're not gonna evaluate you based on the Bible or anything. We're just gonna evaluate you based on what you said other people should do. It's like I've got a tape recorder. I've got a MP3 recorder. I don't know, whatever we use. I've got got a phone here where I've been recording. Every single time you ever said, boy, that person really should, or I cannot believe that they would, or if they only thought about it, surely they would see that so, so, I'm not going to judge you on anything else. We're just going to listen to this recording and see how well you lived up to what you say other people should do. And he hits play. How would you do? No audience participation on that one. <laughs> I don't think I would do very well. I have found that I am highly verbal when it comes to other people's deficiencies, very good at recognizing what others are doing wrong, largely because I, just like all of you, suffer from the fundamental attribution error. When someone else does something they shouldn't do or I think they shouldn't do, well, that's a problem with them, right? Come on, we explain away our own bad behavior by circumstances, I'm grumpy because I'm hungry, It's too hot in here, it's too cold, I'm too tired, I had too much sleep, right? I'm speeding because I need to get to an important appointment. I have to preach this morning, officer, please, you know. I I was rude to you because I've been mulling over this big problem in my head. I'm sorry, there's just other things going on you wouldn't understand. Of course, when you're grumpy, it's because that's just the way you are. Something wrong with you, Right? Uh, when, when you're speeding, it's because you're a jerk who doesn't care about anybody else on the road. When you're rude to people, it's because you just don't love people enough to be kind to them, right? Have you ever been talking with somebody else, and you're, you're kind of going back and forth on something that one of you did to offend the other, and, and instead of saying, hey, could you help me understand why you said what you said? Instead, you said something more like, what's wrong with you? no one? Thank you. I see that hand. In just these two short verses, Jesus is driving down into our hearts, below the surface of our judgments, into our judgmentalism. He's driving down into the level of our hearts, saying, hey, there's... There's an attitude underneath your discernment that's going to turn this process of spiritual discernment away from building one another up and towards tearing one another down. That's not the right direction for a a close-knit family like this this church, like these followers of Jesus. Somebody says in verse 2, you know, with the measure you give, that's the measure you'll get... He's he's not just telling us, hey, you might want to back off a little bit so that other people will back off from you. Because I know there's some of us out there be like, I can take it, which means I can dish it out, right? He's not saying, okay, you know, maybe calm it down a little bit so everybody's a little bit nicer. He's saying get rid of the judgmental attitude, that judgmental, critical, fault-finding attitude that can always see what's wrong in others. That attitude has to go. The spirit that looks at other people's behavior and says, I know exactly why you did that, and it's because you're no good. It's a spirit that has to go. If we don't want to get rid of that attitude, if we enjoy that spirit, if we say, no, this is, this is life for me, then Jesus is saying, you know, in some sense, because of that, you're going to stand condemned before God. The measure you use is the measure you'll get. The judgment you use to judge others is the judgment that will be used to judge you. Because holding on to an attitude of critical fault-finding in others just betrays that in us we really don't understand what it means to have received grace from a God who sees everything that is wrong in us and yet forgives. One Theologian writes that if you hold on to the spirit of criticism in others, it's just evidence that your own spirit hasn't been broken by the grace of God yet. You already stand condemned. It's critical that we get this because we will have to, we'll have to exercise our ability to discern right and wrong in others, in ourselves, in situations around us. We have to, for the good of one another, express opinions about others' behavior in order to correct them and bring them back into the righteousness God calls them to. That's a gift that we give to one another in a family or in a church. We have to be able to do this, but at the same time, we have to recognize there is an overwhelming tendency within us to move from A judgment to judgmentalism. And we have a natural inclination to see much more clearly what's wrong in others than what's wrong in ourselves. But until you can judge yourself fairly, you you will only ever judge others unfairly. That, that is the, the key fundamental major teaching of these 12 verses from verses 1 and 2. You have to be able to judge yourself fairly if you want to be at all useful in helping others uh, assess themselves at all fairly. And after giving us that teaching, verses 1 and 2, then Jesus goes through with a couple examples or sort of applications of it. Uh, verses 3 through 6 start to, start to work this out. It's a humorous story, situation, uh, taken from a wood shop or a a, a carpenter's studio. You can imagine two people, uh, brothers maybe, if you've ever been in a wood wood shop or a workshop, you've probably experienced it where all of a sudden something gets in your eye, right? A little piece of sawdust. And as soon as it gets in there, you start doing the whole finger thing and the mouth movements that that try to get it out. And so you can kind of imagine, right, one guy who's doing this and another one turns to him and says, dude, I think you got something in your eye. He's like, well, no, I know. Yes, thank you. I can feel it. It's the thing about stuff in your eye. It doesn't matter how tiny it is. It's like, no, you can feel when it's there. And often you're doing the whole, can you see it? Can you see it? Can you pull it out? I can't see it. Where is it? And trying to get someone to like, I don't know what they're going to do, come over there and blow on it or something and and trying to get it out. Uh, you see the humor and the irony in the story that Jesus is, is telling here. What makes it ironic is that the one who turns and sees the tiny little speck of sawdust in your eye, when he turns to camera, you realize there's this giant beam across his face. A plank or log might be in your translation. It's a wood, or it's a, a term for the, uh, the ridge beam, you know, a, a piece of timber strong enough to hold up a roof or bar a door. This is massive piece of lumber. It's just right across the guy's face. The point of the story is less about the guy with the sawdust in his eye, right? Because there's an analogy here to our behavior, our own righteousness and evaluating. And the person with the speck of sawdust in their eye actually has something in their eye that needs to be taken care of. There's some sort of behavior there that needs to be, you know, pointed out, addressed, removed, But the irony and the humor is all around the guy who can see a tiny little speck, this expert inspector, sees a tiny little speck in someone else's eye and is somehow entirely oblivious to this huge piece of lumber in their own eye. The problem with the guy isn't that he's exercising his critical faculties to discern right and wrong, in someone else, the problem is he's doing it while remaining entirely unaware of his own inability to judge well. He has no clue what's going on in himself. So how would he have any idea what's going on in someone else's life? Or if he does have an idea, how would he be helpful at all in removing it? You know, we think we're great at seeing what's going on, seeing what's happening in someone else's heart. Uh, But we're not if we're unable to see clearly what's happening in our own hearts. And Jesus has a word that he uses for the kind of person who is astoundingly clear about other people's failures and astoundingly oblivious to their own. It's there in verse 5. He calls the person, you hypocrite. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is the only time that Jesus uses the word hypocrite to refer to any of his own followers. It's the only time in everything we have of Jesus saying where he uses the word to apply and applies it to people kind of inside the disciples of Jesus. He used it over and over again in in Matthew 6 to describe the kind of person who's parading their righteousness, their good acts in front of other people in order to be seen and praised. You know, they're not doing the right things for the right reasons. They're doing it to get some reward from people. He says, they are hypocrites, play-acting at righteousness. Now he says, okay, but look at yourself. If you are... Man, you get an A-plus in seeing what's wrong with other people, but you fail out of seeing what's wrong with yourself. It's another kind of hypocrisy. You're, you're play-acting at spiritual discernment, at wisdom. You're blind to your own issues. One author puts it this way. It says, Discerning the state of another without first examining one's own heart is a dangerous and deadly business, precisely because it is a kind of doubleness. It's the kind of doubleness that Jesus has been preaching against throughout the sermon, the kind of doubleness where we are one thing on the inside and something else on the outside where others can see. It's the doubleness of, of incongruence, of disintegration between what we really desire and what what we want other people to think of us. So Jesus says, if you're going to exercise your critical faculties in such a way as to help others within your church community, within your family, uh, to grow in their discipleship, to to grow in righteousness by removing the things that are unrighteous from their lives, well, first, you're going to have to address your own issues. you got to take the log out of your own eye before you can turn and help anyone else with any issue they may face. So there's a, a, a command implied here, a call on each of us to, with humility, look at ourselves and say, okay, what's going on in, in me? What's going on in me? Before we start looking at, you know, what's going on in, in everyone else. Because how qualified... How qualified of a spec remover is the surgeon who can't feel that he's got a giant beam in his own, his own eye? It's like going to a barber with a bad haircut. Or going to an auto mechanic whose own car is never running. Right? You wouldn't go to a financial advisor who keeps filing for bankruptcy. Nor would you go to someone to help you grow in righteousness when they themselves are blind to how they need to grow now you might at this point five verses in start to think well maybe the best course of uh, of action here is let's just stop judging altogether you know maybe the best thing to do here is just step back withhold all judgment entirely uh, because as long as you don't judge you'll never be judged mental Right, and again, you don't know what's going on in people's hearts, so it's, you don't have all the data that you would need to, to make a, you know, an infallible judgment. Maybe just don't judge at all. And there's a sense in which that sounds holy, but it's not. We'll look at verse 6 here for a few moments. At first glance, it feels like verse 6 doesn't really fit, but actually what's happening here is Jesus is giving sort of the opposite wisdom uh, from verses 1 through 5. You know, if 1 through 5 is about the danger of being overly judgmental and our blindness to our own faults. Uh, verse 6 is the, the, I won't say competing wisdom, but maybe the balancing wisdom of the danger of being under-discerning or uncritical. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. See, judgmentalism, on the one hand, is bad. But so is being undiscerning and not being able to tell the difference between right and wrong, good and bad. Pigs and dogs and others. By the way, when, when you hear pigs, dogs, Jesus on the one hand, he's being hyperbolic here and using, uh, one author calls it, the most, derogatory, uh, yeah, the most derogatory descriptors available in the Jewish vocabulary. Because it's unclean animals. And not dogs as in like the kind of dog you would take to the vet. This is like a pack of mangy, half-wild scroungers that would, you know, eat your chicken or small child, whatever they could get their hands on. And the pigs are not these intelligent, domesticated farm animals. These are, you know, wild boars with tusks uh, that can gore you, trample you. Jesus is not being complimentary, in other words. So don't, he says, throw your, your pearls, throw those things that are holy, of great value. Uh, to these types of, of creatures. Why would you give something so valuable to something that is so irresponsibly destructive? It's like giving a five year old a brand new iPhone. You know that's not going to last long, right? We're buying a Porsche for a teenager. It's like start them on a Saturn uh, because they can't break it any worse than it already is, right? <laughs> So what Jesus is saying through hyperbolic, memorable imagery is that we have to be discerning enough about other people that, that we, people we're dealing with who, who won't or can't uh, appreciate what we're trying to share with them. We have to be discerning enough that we don't waste our time or open ourselves up to contempt or worse. He's calling on us to exercise a right kind of discernment. A discernment that's, that's different from scolding, condemning judgment. A discernment that's different from uncritical self-righteousness, in which when we compare ourselves to anyone, it doesn't matter who, somehow they always end up less than us. He's calling us to a discernment that is used to build others up. To encourage one another in their growth in righteousness. A discernment that comes from a place of grace and of mercy, not a a discernment that pushes everyone else down so I can feel a little bit better about myself. See, the, the problem here is that we have to judge, we have to discern. And if we're in a family that is all together trying to follow Jesus in his call to greater righteousness, we have to voice an opinion about another person's behavior in such a way that we seek to influence their behavior towards that call to righteousness. We have to. It's what we're called to out of love for one another. It is part of the gift of being in a church family, being in a small group, being in a family together. We have to. To judge we have to discern which means we really have to learn how to judge ourselves fairly first if you cannot judge yourself fairly you will only ever judge others unfairly this is the art of spiritual discernment being able to see yourself clearly enough that you can be useful to helping others see themselves clearly. The problem comes when we take this heavy responsibility towards you know to exercise spiritual discernment and we take this responsibility and turn it into a justification for spiritual judgmentalism. In one theologian's commentary on this passage he says there's a huge difference between Christians who are willing to say this is right and this is wrong. And those who take pleasure in saying to others, you are right, you are wrong. This is wrong, God condemns it, is much different from you are wrong, God condemns you. You see the difference? One is discernment, and the other is judgmentalism. And we will always tend in this direction until we can see ourselves clearly, see the grace that has been given to us clearly, and then we can see clearly to help those around us who also need to grow in righteousness, just like ourselves. So what are we going to do with these verses? What needs to change in our own lives? Well, I think the main point of application has to be how do we see ourselves more clearly if we're called to help one another grow and first we have to see ourselves clearly in order to be effective at that well then how do we learn to see ourselves more clearly how do i get better at spotting the beam in my own eye and resist the temptation to point out the specks the sawdust in everybody else's eyes well obviously the first i suppose the most obvious way is simply to ask other people this is why community is so important, to ask other people, hey, how, how do you experience me? Or how have you seen me judge others for behavior that I always let myself off the hook for? Pastor Jeff and I have a, a, a pastoral coach that we connect with on a pretty regular basis, just an older wise seasoned pastor we can ask questions of. You can help us think through leadership challenges and stuff like that. We've been meeting with him off and on for a couple of years. And from the very beginning, he emphasized over and over to me that we all have something he called blind spots. This is, I guess, apparently a thing where like you have some deficiency in your character that you're not aware of, or you come across immaturely or insensitively to some people in some ways because of some trigger or something like that. I told him I don't have any blind spots that I can see. Actually, I asked him, okay, so assuming you're correct, how does one become aware of their blind spots and begin to address them? And he he told me there's two ways. One's active, one's passive. Uh, The easier way, the passive way, is to just simply let your blind spots cause profound failure or profound tragedy in your life. And then you'll notice them. You'll be like, oh, that's why I keep screwing that thing up over and over and over again. I must have a blind spot. The other way is to actively ask others, hey, what do you see in me that I don't see in myself? So if you're in a community group or a close-knit group of friends, or you've got somebody you trust who you know, when they say it to you straight, they actually have your best interest at heart, ask them, how do you experience me? What do you see me judging other people for that I let myself off the hook for? Because we're all subject to that fundamental attribution error. You know, the tendency to, to blame other people's bad behavior on their character and our own bad behavior on circumstances. So where are you falling into that trap? An inability to see yourself clearly while seeing others so clearly. The point of spiritual discernment is not so that we can go around to other people and say, you didn't measure up, you didn't measure up, you didn't measure up, you didn't measure up, but look at me. The point of spiritual discernment is to, to go to another person and say, hey, we both got stuff in our eyes that are keeping us from seeing clearly, but you might be able to see me clearly, and I might be able to see you clearly. How can we help each other grow? How can we help each other find this greater righteousness that Jesus is calling to? Can you imagine what your family would look like if this was a regular part of your practice? Different commentators point out there's only, well, there's five verses here warning against the danger of being overly critical, and only one verse warning against the danger of being undercritical. He says the proportion is probably right. What if we spent five times as much energy examining ourselves and asking for help for ourselves than we did in pointing out what's wrong in someone else? What if we spent five times as much energy in our churches, in our church, examining ourselves before pointing out what's wrong in others? And what, what would your family, what would your community group or this church family be like? If, if we all just kind of hesitated a little bit before stating with certainty What's motivating somebody else's behavior? And said, hey, you know, actually, I could use a little help with something I've got going on first. When you ask yourself these questions, you might find there's someone you need to ask to forgive you. I know there is for me. Because until you can judge yourself fairly, you'll only ever judge others unfairly. I think we need to pray. Father, we find ourselves mired in all sorts of errors of judgment. I find it easy to want to write them off, to say, well, that's just that's just the way we are. But God you've called us to a higher and to a greater righteousness, one that sees through your grace sees ourselves so much more clearly than we've ever seen ourselves before. And one that is so much more focused on looking inward than on judging outward. Father, may you do a work in us so that as we work with and in others, we will discern with grace and may all come together before your throne in greater righteousness. I pray this for us, for faith, for our families. In Jesus' name, amen.